Have you ever tried to be friends with somebody, but they really didn't respond? It's kind of the story of my life. <laughs> Literally, I had a best friend. And uh, he, was, he was like my, my groomsman at my wedding. And after my wedding, I have not talked to him. I mean, I, I, I have no idea. I guess I got hitched and he was like, you know, bros are out. Uh, sometimes that happens. Have you ever tried to love someone, but they don't necessarily love you back? This is what Apostle Paul begins talking about in Romans chapter 9 today. When we see that God's chosen people, the nation of Israel that he called for himself, were not the ones who ended up loving him back. But this didn't stop God's love, and it didn't stop God's plan. But what if I told you that God performs his best when man performs his worst? You see, when Israel denied the lordship of Christ, when they didn't understand the meaning of the law and the prophets that pointed to Jesus, it opened the door for the Messiah to be crucified so that God could graft in the Gentile nations into His covenant plan. It was because of the futility of man that God showed His ability through Christ. All the time on Facebook, I see the quote where people say, Don't make time for someone who doesn't make time for you. Or I also see this quote, they'll post a little picture, says, Don't make someone a priority who only makes you an option. Folks, let me tell you what, this is the philosophy of the world, not the philosophy of Christ. You see, the world says, if I don't get anything back, I'm not going to spend time with you. If I don't get anything in return, I'm not going to love you. But the love of God, agape love, unconditional love says, no matter how you treat me, no matter what you do to me, I'm still going to love. Therefore, we love those who never love us back. We invest in those who will never be able to return. Love does not seek its own gain. It is one way, it is directional, it is focused from the giver to the recipient, and it has no strings attached. And that is God's love. It doesn't matter how you respond to me or how you love me back, because the love of God that lives in us is unconditional, and it's who we are and what we're called to replicate. So this morning we begin Romans chapter 9. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 5. Let's read in the Word. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my own countrymen according to the flesh, who are the Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. My message today is this, the ability of God through the futility of man. And we're going to see... 
in the way God works through history and mankind. There are four dichotomies that occur in the relationship of God and man. In your notes, the first dichotomy is this, that Paul evidences Christian joy does not remove evangelistic sorrow. Christian joy does not remove evangelistic sorrow. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish, continual grief in my heart. Now let's rewind, let's backtrack. For the past several months, we were in Romans chapter 8, and we saw this great crescendo that God is... Let me, i got to pause and tell you this. Bella was riding her bike around the back uh, concrete patio. I said, Bella, you need to slow down. And she said... She said, Dad, oh man, i got to remember it. She said, I'm not going, I'm going rapido, not multissimo. Something like this. I can't remember it. But she used two musical terms. She says, I'm not going multissimo, I'm going rapido. I said, what? You're six years old. What are you talking about? Crescendo made me think about it. It was sweet. Never mind. So, um. (laughs) there was a great crescendo that God is faithful to save Those who are called by His grace and love. His unconditional love does not call someone to salvation because of how good they are. And this is what Romans chapter 8 showed us. (laughs) That God does not call to Himself because of our own inherent goodness. Let me tell you, someone goes to heaven and people say, well, God called home the best. No, my friend, God calls the worst. Because if anyone thinks they're the best, they're a Pharisee. And they don't see the grace of God. God doesn't call anyone because of our goodness. He calls because of His one-way love, His grace. So we have this huge chapter 8 about God's faithfulness and ability to save those who He calls to Himself. And in chapter 8, you know, we're really happy in the Lord. Paul's really rejoicing in God because of this salvation. And then we take this violent transition. It's like God is able to save and I have great sorrow. I mean, how, how, how can you be so happy and then so sad? I don't know. A lot of church people do it every Sunday. <laughs> Maybe they have great sorrow in their heart. Maybe it's because of evangelism that they come in just looking like they oh, don't want to get up today. But, but Paul has this unceasing anguish. So I want you to imagine that you're on a cruise ship, and uh, the cruise ship begins to sink. Now, if you're going on a cruise this summer, don't imagine this. <laughs> but if you're not, imagine you're on a cruise ship, and the cruise ship begins to sink, and uh, you don't have uh, time to get in a lifeboat, and there you are swimming and floating in the ocean for hours with hundreds of other people in, in the heat and the salt water. And then after hours you're exhausted and you literally can go no more. You can swim no more. And just as you begin to sink, an arm reaches down and pulls you into the boat. And that's such a great analogy of our inability to climb into salvation without the rescue of God. That's the great analogy. Now you were on the brink of death, but the hand reached and dragged you into life. Can you imagine that joy? Can you imagine that rejoicing? That's what we have in Jesus Christ. I don't know if I need to remind anybody that we were on the way to hell and Christ saved us from the curse of the law. 
Sometimes I think we need, maybe I got it, Pastor Dave. Sometimes we need to start out with a little word of scripture before we get into the worship because we need, we need to remember why we're worshiping for. I, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm pretty selfish. And I forget. And I, I, I come in here and I think, well, you know what? It just don't feel the right temperature in here. And Man, let me tell you, them, them drums are just too cotton-picking loud. I'm going to tell you what. And, and we get all these thoughts, but you're not here because of what you like. We're here because God called us and saved us. And so this arm pulls you into the boat. You have this great joy. You're not going to die. But after you've caught your breath, you look around and you realize that there are hundreds still in the water. And some of those still in the water, maybe they don't want to get into the boat. Because maybe they're waiting for another cruise ship to come along. Nah, I'm going to wait on that rescue boat because I want the Royal Caribbean to come. Maybe they don't want to get in the boat because they think they're on an excursion. This is um, adventure swimming. <laughs> it was in adventure swimming. Whatever. But you know they're going to die if they're not saved. So you have simultaneous joy and simultaneous sorrow. And I believe it was because of Paul's joy in Christ, because he was so joyful in his salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he had so much sorrow for the Jews because he knew, man, you're missing out. You're missing the point. You're walking around trying to... Trying to Keep clean and trying to do good and look good in front of mankind. But God says you're a whitewashed tomb. You're dead on the inside. You're missing out. And so he had sorrow because his fellow nation had missed Jesus. And this drove him to go into the synagogues and reason with the Jews. It drove him to plead with the Jewish leaders from the scriptures. Even though Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles, his own people were never far from his heart. It is our joy in God's glory which motivates our compassion for God's people. When we are so raptured in the joy of God, we will find that those who don't have that joy... Man, we're, we're sorrow for them. Look at your pitiful life. I'm not talking to you. But do you ever go to Walmart and just say, what are all you people doing? <laughs> Literally. What are you doing with your life? Don't you know there's purpose? Don't you know there's everlasting joy? So it's because of that joy we have great sorrow for those people who don't have it. Secondly, personal contentment does not replace corporate desire. When we're content because of our own salvation, it does not re replace the corporate desire to see others being called to Christ. He says, I, wish that my, I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race. He says, if it were possible, I would rather Israel be saved than for me to have Christ. That's a big statement. I don't know if I'd say that. <laughs> that you wish somebody else go to heaven in place of you? That you would go to hell so that others can come to heaven? I don't know that I would say that, but Paul did. Paul was a radical Christ follower. You know why? Because God had changed him. And he says, if I could, I would wish that my own, 
salvation were cut off from Christ for the sake of Israel. But he knows that not possible because God has called him and the gift of calling of God is irrevocable. I read somebody said that in the, in the tribulation, the Christians will take the mark of the beast. Now, I'm not going to get into eschatology right now, but let me tell you what. The gift and calling of God is irrevocable and we just saw that neither height nor depth nor nothing else in all creation can separate from you from the love of uh, Christ. If the Holy Spirit dwells, the Holy Spirit don't worship the beast. Some people are a little confused. Paul knew, I I can't give up my salvation because God's the one that's placed it there. This makes a stark point that Paul is more worried about others' experience of God than his own experience of God. If you look at the modern church today, everything rotates around us building up our own experience of God. Everything rotates around a personal experience of God. And you'll even see some New Age churches that advertise worship experience. Like it's some kind of 3D movie theater. And it's all about an, a, a personal encounter. And when, when Christianity becomes all about how you personally deal with God, it's no longer how you corporately deal with the lost. When that's the essence of Christianity is your personal experience, then guess what? If that experience is, is you know, satisfactory, then I'm going to go on my own way and I'm going to go to, uh, what's that place called? K&W, I'm going to go to K&W, I'm going to get me a little mashed potatoes and roast beef, and then I'm going to go home and watch football. And I'm not going to tell anybody about the Lord Jesus Christ, because personally, it was good for me. Postmodern Christianity has become a religion of emotional encounter with God, not our obedience to His commission. And this is where so many go wrong. They become content and focused on their own salvation, and they neglect their own peers and community. But here's the New Testament model. The New Testament model is that you cannot experience God apart from his heart of calling others to himself. The way you experience God is through his plan and mission to call and draw others. That is the experience of God. And be honest with you, that doesn't just happen in a church building. It happens in your workplace, in your neighborhood. It happens in your home. It happens in your car. That's where we experience God, when we walk with him. You see, if you want to be a Christian, God's not calling you on a pleasure cruise. He's calling you to a battle station. I want to share some brief information with you. Did you know that in 1990, the population of Cabarrus County was about 90,000 people? And in the last 25 years, can you guess how much it has increased? 1990, it was 90,000 people. How much has it increased in 25 years? It's increased by 100,000 people. 200 years that it took Cabarrus County to grow to 90,000 in 25 years, it has over doubled. 100,000 people in 25 years. So, did you know that the average church has the capacity to reach to about 100 people? The average church in America runs about 70 in worship. They, have, they can reach about 100 people. So you don't know how many churches would be needed in Cabarrus County to reach 100,000 people? Do the math. 1,000 churches. Let that sink in for a minute. In 1990, there were 90,000 people, and there's basically the same number of churches around. Because to be honest with you, a lot of them has closed their doors. And not many has popped up. This one has, praise the Lord. I'm glad it did. I checked with my friend who works with church planters in North Carolina, and I said, how many Baptist churches have been planted in Cabarrus County in 25 years? He said, 
about 15, and out of those 15, seven didn't make it. That leaves about eight new Baptist churches in 25 years. With a population increase of 100,000. So let's put this on the paradigm here. 100,000 new people and eight new churches. You know why the church is not keeping up with the culture? Because they're so concerned with what kind of music we hear on Sunday that they forgot there's 100,000 dying without Jesus. And that's the honest truth. And listen, I love music. And I play music with Pastor Dave. And we pick out hymns. We sing hymns on Wednesday. That's not the point. My point is, I don't come here because I like the music. I come because I worship the Lord Jesus Christ and He's called me into a plan and a purpose and a mission. And I'm attached to that. The church begins to die when selfishness begins to arise. Point number three, the third dichotomy is that national inheritance does not trump individual knowledge. He says in verse 4, That Israel has the adoption, they have the glory, they have the covenant, they have the law, they have the temple worship. They got everything. You know, wives, has your husband ever got a a grill or a a piece of equipment or a toy for the children? And and after about five hours, he realizes it was wrong because he didn't look at the instructions? And you find in the bottom of the box the pieces of paper that tells him how to do it right and he never looked at it? Well, here's the thing. Israel had the instructions. They just didn't follow the instructions. Because the instructions pointed to the Messiah. Now, if I took, you know, if I took the, the document for Bella's playset and I used it to build my house... I'm taking the instructions for a purpose of what they're not used. The instructions are to point us to Jesus, not to my own self-righteousness. They had it all and they missed it. What's that? That's true. When all else fails, read the instructions. Man, that'll preach right now today. I mean, if Israel had the law, they had the temple, they had the foreshadows of the Messiah, they had all that, and they missed Jesus, how can we possibly even conceive that a Gentile who doesn't have the law, doesn't have the temple, doesn't have the prophets, would come to a knowledge of him? Think about it. If Israel had all the revelation but missed it, how can a Gentile who has no revelation get it? And I'll tell you what this tells us. This tells us that salvation is based on the work of the Spirit of God. It's a supernatural work. It's not based in the faculties of man. I mean, God uses men who don't deserve to preach to call people who don't deserve to be saved. You know what God says through the whole process? It ain't about you. Hey, Israel, y'all puffed up, self-righteous legalists, y'all missed it. The highest puffed up ones missed it. That's why when we reduce salvation to simply a human choice, we rob from it the most powerful element that it contains, the miraculous hand of God. The miraculous hand of God. And lastly, human failure does not prevent God's sovereignty. He says, they have the patriarchs, which means the fathers. They have them, and from them is traced the ancestry of the Messiah. So here's what he says. They messed everything up except for the lineage of Jesus. 
They messed everything up except for Jesus came from them. Do you know what he's telling us? He says, they missed it all, but God still brought about Christ. God's ability through man's futility. Jesus still came. Isn't that miraculous? Isn't that miraculous that King David was an adulterer, but Jesus still came? Isn't it miraculous that, that, that Moses was disobedient and strikes the rock, but Jesus still came? Hmm. So here's the amazing thing. If Israel had not been blinded to the scriptures, they would not have crucified Jesus. If they would have, if they would have not read the scriptures incorrectly, they would have never killed the Messiah. It was because of their inability that God was able. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. You know what that gives me? Hope, Brother Charlie, that even when we mess up, there's still hope for God. Even in my mess-ups, there's still hope for God. It was because of their failure that God opened His plan of salvation for the nations through Jesus Christ. Indeed, you and I were grafted into the root of David and the people of Israel because Israel refused to believe. I mean, what a miracle. And here's what we'll see in the next coming weeks, that God's raised up those people for his purpose God raised up the disobedient Israelites for his purpose you know what chapter 9 also tells us God raised up Pharaoh and hardened Pharaoh's heart for his purpose that means that God raised up a hard hearted generation so that you and I would have a transformed hearted generation And all that happened, Pharaoh, Israel, the Pharisees, were so, were so that God's glory could be revealed through His Son on the cross. It was all created for the cross so that we would re, be redeemed by it. That means that all the failures of man, God were allowing so that you and I could be redeemed. God is not the cause of evil. He is the redeemer of it. When man was unfaithful, God still was. And God's faithfulness through Christ permeates his faithfulness to his children. So here's the question for somebody today. I think a lot of times what keeps us from the kindness of God is the knowledge that we've messed up so badly. We have messed up so badly that we don't think God can do anything with me. My friend, unless you've killed hundreds of Christians, like Apostle Paul, I think God can still do something with you. And even if you have murdered a hundred Christians, God can still do something with you. I don't know about you, but it gets no worse. King David committed adultery, then brought his adulterer, uh, adulterer's husband in and killed the man. I think we're all good. I think there's hope. I'm going to ask the praise team to come forward, the musicians that are here. And before we celebrate communion, I just want to ask, if there's someone that's ready to give their life to Jesus Christ, you're ready to trust in Jesus. You understand that communion is for God's people. It is for people who follow Jesus Christ. It's not for everybody. If you're not a Christian today, I invite you not to take communion. But if you are a Christian, 
You should participate. And before we celebrate, maybe there's someone who says, you know what? I'm ready to trust Jesus because even through my failures, God has still drawn me to him. Let's have a time of prayer. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. Lord, thanking for your sovereignty and your goodness, God. And I ask, God, if there's someone here that's ready to just, just follow you with all their heart, God, that you've done a, na- a supernatural work in their life, Lord, that they'll just walk this out as we sing. And they'll come and they'll trust you and become a Christian today. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand as we sing our invitation hymn. Hymn 134. seated in the Lord's house. I'm going to ask for our deacons to come forward as we begin to celebrate communion. Miss Lauren, at the distribution of the bread, will sing that song, Give Me Jesus, with the choir. What a special privilege it is to partake in the righteous elements of Jesus Christ. The bread does not miraculously change us, but it represents the miraculous change that God has wrought through His Holy Spirit today.